Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Humans are fundamentally irrational creatures, and you have to understand that in order to even be a hypnotist. It's very frustrating to think that you should be able to change somebody's mind with your facts and your reason and your logic and then it just doesn't happen. And you could try it a thousand times in a row and it just never works. And you keep wondering, why can't I change anybody's minds with my facts and logic? I live in a world where if I don't have something that will change them emotionally, I would not bother <laughs> to try to change their mind any other way. So, like, how can I personally improve my life? Given that I just assume everything's, everybody makes decisions irrationally. And there, there are some books about this, like, you know, Dan Ariely has Predictably Irrational and Freakonomics is sort of about this. And the whole area of behavioral economics is sort of about this. But viewing it from a, a persuasion point of view or a hypnotist point of view, how can I make my life better today knowing this? I'm on with Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, although this time we're not talking about Dilbert. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is your this is your third time on the James Altucher show. You're actually one of my uh, most popular guests now. So so oh, it gets better every time. Yes. And the reason it gets better every time is you just did you just completed an incredible feat, in my opinion, which is for the past year and a half, you've been accurately predicting First, a Donald Trump nomination, then a Donald Trump presidency. The earliest I saw you predict the full Donald Trump presidency was September 2015 in your, in your blog. Did you predict it earlier than that? I think in August I said he, you know, he had a good chance, and by September I was pretty pretty committed to it. Yeah. And did um, I, I know in your blog you were saying you were you were claiming to be for Hillary for various reasons of safety or whatever, but did your friends think you were crazy for predicting uh, Trump to be president? It turns out that uh, only Trump supporters thought that he could become president, and uh, Clinton supporters never thought there was any chance. So yeah, everybody uh, in my circle, I'd say 80% of them were Clinton supporters, and every one of them thought I was just literally insane. I mean, people thought I was actually crazy. And and people kind of still do. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that I predicted ahead of time is that after Trump's win, 
uh, there would be lots of explanations for why it happened, and none of those explanations would have been obvious ahead of time. So that's why I made a big deal about predicting it instead of saying after the fact, oh, here's the reason after the fact that I think it happened. Um, for example, people said, well, the change candidate wins 80% of the time, so this shouldn't have surprised us at all. Well, I don't remember anybody the day before Election Day saying Trump had an 80% chance of winning because he was the change candidate. I mean, yeah. None of that stuff was predictive. I mean, even on the night of the election, between 8 and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I think Nate Silver's site, site 538, went from Trump having an 88% chance of winning, I mean, sorry, went from having about a 10% chance of winning to an 88% chance of winning in that hour late on election night. Right. So, so, Which so, just tells you that, that, that nothing that was said before that meant anything. Right, zero. An entire year and a half of entertainment on the news was worth zero. <laughs> they should have just been reading yeah. your blog and like reading it on the news. So, so oh, let's get into the nuts and bolts of, I mean, you've gone on and on about how Trump is the greatest persuader you've seen and you have the experience in this because you've been also trained as a hypnotist and persuader. And I first wanted to learn a little about that, like, what does that mean? Well, I took an actual class to become a hypnotist in my 20s. And uh, I was influenced because my mother had given birth to my younger sister while my mother was under hypnosis. My family doctor was a hypnotist as well. And she reported that she felt no pain during childbirth, but she was awake. She was aware. She remembers it all. Now, I'm not sure how much of that story is true, but it's a story that influenced me when I was a kid. And so as soon as I could, in my 20s, I looked for a class to try to learn this, this thing that I thought was a superpower to see if it could give me some advantages in life. And sure enough, the, the advantages you get from learning that kind of skill are just tremendous, and they, they cross every field that you could be uh, involved in. And what class did you take? It was specifically the Clement School of Hypnosis in San Francisco. It doesn't exist. And by school, I mean... There was a hypnotist who would have a dozen or so of us meet in his office and he would give us lessons. I think it was twice a week for 10 weeks or something along those lines. And let me ask a naive question, which is, what is hypnotism? Like when I think of it, I think of this almost like you, you have a, a clock that goes back and forth in front of someone's eyes and they, yeah. they go to sleep and then you control them. That's my naive version of hypnotism. What does it actually mean? Uh, I love that question because um, nobody really has a good impression of what it is unless they're involved. Most of most people have the movie version, which has, like you said, the the watch that you're waving in front of someone. That actually doesn't exist in the real world of hypnosis. No, no one is actually using any kind of a watch. There's no there's no technique that would require that. Uh, likewise, the the assassin who goes and kills somebody under hypnosis that can't happen either. Because under hypnosis, you are always aware enough that you know your own self-interest and you know your priorities don't change when you're under hypnosis. Uh, what the best way to describe it is a very relaxed state in which you become simpatico simpatico with the uh, with the hypnotist. So much so that the hypnotist suggestions are so familiar and friendly, and they just seem like they're a part of you that you allow them in uncritically. And some of the fun of hypnosis is that you could cause 
someone's body to move without them having a conscious awareness that they're the one moving it. So, for example, the most standard thing you do during a hypnosis induction is to tell someone their, their arm is light and it's so light it's going to start floating. And when you watch the person's arms start to float, um, usually their eyes are closed at that point, well, you know that's sort of a turning point, and it's also the reason they hadn't just do it. Because once the subject sees that their body is actually um, moving to an external command, the way that they're only used to seeing their own brain can, can you know, move their own body, it, uh, it's a freaky experience, but it's also kind of a comfortable one because the hypnotist makes it that way. So, and so, it's, it's fun, too. Uh, but anyway, the, so the point is you create a situation where the hypnotist's suggestions have the same power as if they came from your own head. And, and you're always doing it voluntarily. How, how does that happen? Like, I can't even imagine someone telling me your arm's going to float and then my arm starts oh. floating. Like, how do, what's, the, what's the mechanics of how that is happening? And then I do want to get to Trump, but I'm really fascinated just by the mechanics of persuasion and, and hypnotism, and we'll, we'll segue that into Trump. Yeah, let me state by saying that I don't know that anybody in a scientific way can explain why hypnosis works. So uh, hypnosis came, uh, it was born long before a lot of the, the good modern science we know even existed. So it was more of a, we've observed that if you do this, you get this result, and we don't even know why. So when I learned it, there wasn't much attention to the, you know, the physics or the science of it. It was just a... Uh, observational thing that when you do this, you'll get this result. And if you want that result, do this, but we don't know why. Um, but if, if I could, you know, get a little closer to that question, um, humans are fundamentally irrational creatures and you have to understand that in order to even be a hypnotist is if you imagine that people are rational, then that very example that I gave you doesn't make any sense at all. Right. Because people would be sitting there saying, I hear an outside voice, how does that affect my arm? But once you learn that people are pretty much irrational all the time, and that our sense of being rational is literally an illusion, uh, and that we're going through our lives irrationally and then rationalizing what we did as if it were some kind of you know, reasonable thing, um, once you realize that's actually the case and that describes life better, hypnosis makes a little more sense. Because all you're doing is you're creating a situation where you have paced your subject, and pacing means just matching them. In you could be matching their breathing, their speaking style, their posture, their um, body language. So you can you can pace it a number of ways. But what happens is people get comfortable with you, and they start to lose the distinction between themselves and you. So a a common trick that hypnotists do is if you're in a business meeting, you could be there a while and you're sitting at a table and there's somebody across the table from you. What you can do is just sort of a parlor trick that amuses you and nobody else. You can match what they're doing. So they scratch themselves, you scratch yourself in the same place. They lean, you lean, they put their arm up, you put their arm up. Eventually, and it doesn't take long, over the course of, say, five minutes, you can start doing what's called leading. It's the second part after pacing. So once you've matched them, and the other person is completely unaware. They just know there's somebody sitting on the other side of the table and they're involved in the meeting. Once you've paced them long enough, you can start leading. So you could say, for example, um, lean your chin on your right hand. And you'll, you'll notice quite often the other person will just immediately lean their chin on the right hand. Now, if you ask them why they did it, 
they would have a reason. They'd say, well, this is just something I do. I was tired of this old position. It was time to shift. So they would have a reason, but that wouldn't be the reason. The reason is that they were just uh, matched to your mind for a while, didn't know it, and their body responded to you instead of their own brain. Um, so you can just take that to the larger sense when you're making somebody's arm float. They've just become so comfortable with your thoughts, and they've, they've observed some of your thoughts translate in a smaller way into their body. And then when you go to the bigger stuff, they're ready for it. So, for example, if I tell you, <clears throat> well, let me give you an induction. Okay. I'll do one right here so you, you get a sense for it. So if, I, if you were in a room with me, I would tell you to look straight ahead. And I'll tell you that as you're staring at an object, and by the way, the people listening to this don't have to worry about being hypnotized. This is just a very small piece of it. Um, I would tell you that um, your eyelids are actually a muscle, uh, of course, and they actually require energy to stay open. Now, you don't realize this during the day because your eyes are open all day, and you're blinking back and forth, and it doesn't occur to you that you're actually using energy to keep them open. And so if I remind you of that, you start thinking of them. And when you're thinking of them, you can remind yourself that they are actually muscles. And then I can tell you, you might be blinking more often pretty soon than you were before. Now, some of this is in the form of sort of a magic trick. Because if I tell you that you're blinking more than you were before, that might not be true. But it doesn't matter. Because if you think it's true, then you felt some connection between what I said and what you're doing, and that's all I'm trying to do. It's kind of like the, so, the Honda effect. Like if you just buy a Honda, suddenly you see more Hondas on the on the road, and you think, where are all these Hondas coming from? <laughs> yeah, the, the, that's related for sure, yeah. So uh, once you have somebody believing that the things you say, even if it's simple stuff like you're getting more relaxed, and then they do get more relaxed, as soon as I see that connection between what you say and what's happening in their body, you can just extend it. And you can extend that pretty far, all, you know, all the way to the point of, in, in some cases, if it's a willing subject, giving them you know, massive multiple orgasms. Um, <laughs> well, well, so well this, br this brings me to how did you see this change your life? Like once you knew some of these techniques, and a lot of these things are related to cognitive biases. A lot of them, I would say, have been studied by science now. How did you see you, this start changing your life as early as your 20s or even right now? Well, the main perceptual shift is to see people as irrational all the time, because it's very frustrating to think that you should be able to change somebody's mind with your facts and your reason and your logic, and then it just doesn't happen. And you could try it a thousand times in a row, and it just never works. And you keep wondering, why can't I change anybody's minds with my facts and logic? I don't live in that world. I live in a world where if I don't have something that will change them emotionally, I would not bother <laughs> to try to change your mind any other way, unless it was something that had no emotional content, you know, something just purely objective that nobody cares too much about. In those cases, you do use your sense of reason. But in anything that matters, you know, love, careers, even picking your car, you know, these are actually emotional decisions that we rationalize after the fact. Now, we do do some, like, a little bit of rational thinking to make sure we can afford the car and, you know, the has the features we want. But the ultimate final decision among the last three is just purely emotional and rational. So let's say let's um, say you wanted to change someone's opinion on something, like, uh, I don't know, 
uh, like climate change or whatever. And and you've you've written. I have some questions about this later. You've written about this on your blog. But let's say you you had one opinion and they had another, and you were interested in changing their opinion. How would you use hypnosis techniques to change their opinion? Well, so there's not one way, but I'll I'll give you an example. Um, the first thing I would do is pace. In other words, I would fully embrace their argument. And I would say, yeah, those are good sources. There are a lot of scientists on that side. Yeah, I hear every bit of that. Because you have to agree with them first so that they say, oh, yeah, you're one of me. So it's sort of a variation of Nixon goes to China. Um, for those listening, maybe you're too young who don't know that um, reference. When Nixon was president, he was a real badass about China. He was the most anti-China, anti-communist guy around. But when he decided to get friendly with China for the benefit of the country and, and improve relations, he was uniquely suited because he was one of us. And if one of us could be friendly with China, then why couldn't we? You know, because we're like him. So the pacing is very important. If you start off with, all right, let's start this argument with I'm right and you're an idiot, the argument's already done. Nobody's going to move from that point. But if you can if you can make a persuasive case that you're on their side, then you can start introducing evidence that it will help them change their own mind. So you might say, for example, yeah, and have you have you looked at the arguments of the other side? They're surprisingly good. Uh, and you might say, I don't believe them, but it's amazing how persuasive they are. So there, you're giving somebody not an argument; you're giving them permission to go look at another side with uh, a safe environment. Yeah, I'm not telling you it's going to convince you. I'm not even saying I believe it. I'm just saying it's really persuasive, strangely persuasive. You should see how persuasive it is. Now, my experience, to use this very example of climate change, is that as a non-scientist, I've looked at both sides, and I think they're both really, really persuasive, meaning that if you were only exposed to one side, you'd be completely convinced no matter which side you looked at first. And that probably closes you off to really fully considering the other side once you've dug in on one position. So, climate science is a is a tough one. Um, well, what about what about I was, what about love now? Like, how would you let's say you meet a woman and you want her to think fondly of you? What would how would you use? Yes. Well, let me let me say first of all, I'm not a member of the pickup artist society, the the group of people who trade secrets for. Um, manipulating women into sex. That's like a whole subspecies of persuasion that I, I haven't been involved in. So I'll give you my, my general answer to this. If you think that people are rational, then you think that they're looking at your, your five criteria or whatever. It's like, is he, is he good looking? Is, does he like the things I like? Sense of humor and all that. Most of that is not as powerful as you think. What you want to do is back up to people's biological uh, nature because that's where decisions are coming from. Our biggest impulse is reproduction, right? It's the only thing that evolution had to get right. Evolution didn't need us to see the world for what it really is, because indeed we're all walking around in different illusions. You know, somebody thinks they reincarnated from a monk, and somebody else thinks their prophet flew to heaven on a winged horse. Those are completely different realities. But yeah, we can still shop and eat and have babies, so it doesn't matter. So reality goes on. But everything kind of comes back to our biological base. And if I were trying to uh, seduce somebody, whether male or female, you know, works both ways is what I'm saying, um, you should try to present what makes you a good 
mating uh, potential. In other words, what looks like that you have good genes. So, for example, if you um, are good at something, that's sort of a talent for having good genes. It doesn't matter what it is. If you have a talent for anything from music to business to writing, sports, doesn't matter. If you can demonstrate that in public so somebody sees it, they're far more likely to irrationally say, I must mate with that person because they have good genes and I want, I want to pass those on. Now, if you ask them why they were attracted to this person who was doing this skilled thing in front of them, they might say, you know, that's just my type. I, I, I like brunettes and you know, he's tall or whatever it is. Uh, but those would be rationalizations after the fact. So, 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 so there's, some lot, there's, there's still some logic involved, right? There, there's some, some things, some criteria you look for in a mate that you just have to have. But once you get to the general category of, you know, well, this one's good enough, um, you can look for that biological tell that there's some good genes and that's what triggers people. So what did you specifically start doing, let's say, to to show that you were good at something? Well, in my case, um, I've always had at least something going on that was uh, both public and, and good. So prior to being famous for Dilbert, which is itself a, a tell for good genes, I guess, any kind of success, not, not mine in particular. Um, I, I was a valedictorian in high school and you know, I played some sports well. So I always had something going on that people would at least be aware that I was good at a few things. And I think almost anybody can be good at a few things if they just spend a ton of time at it. You know, if you, if you just, spend all your time playing tennis, for example, which I did, you're almost certain to become better than other people who play tennis just because you practice more. So it's something that you can, you can manipulate over time, just having a system to get good at a few things that other people are going to notice and identify as good genetic material. So you've, you've studied this for, for years, for decades, and you've said that Trump, out of all the persuaders you've ever seen, Trump is the the greatest you've ever seen? Now, how did how does how do, a do you identify the greatest in this case, and b um, how do you extend what you're saying to kind of a mass scale? Well, keep in mind that I borrow some of Trump's technique when I make a statement like he's the greatest persuader I've ever seen, <laughs> because because that statement automatically made your antenna go up and say probably not the greatest one. And how would you know which is the greatest one? And how would you even determine that? And how is that even objective? Now, I do that intentionally to make you do exactly what you just did. You, you hypnotize me. Rem- well, it makes you remember it. So that's actually a, a memory persuasion trick. I say something that's directionally right, because that is directionally right. But there's just something about it that goes too far. That's the hyperbole part. Trump does this all the time. And it makes you argue about the details but, but while you're arguing about the details, he's already made the sale that directionally, you know, this is important and you should be thinking about. So um, when, I, when I say that about Trump, I just mean he's you know, one of the best. There's no way to really measure that stuff. Now, what makes him one of the best are the following things. One is he uses actual technique. Um, so he's often making us think past the sale, for example. I use the, the example when he went on Saturday Night Live the first time. Obviously, the candidates get to approve whatever skit they're in or else they just wouldn't do it. And he approved the skit in which he was shown in the future in the Oval Office as the president. 
Now that's making our brains go to um, imagining him as president. Because remember, mm. at the time, a year ago, people said they couldn't even imagine it. So he had to fix that. So he actually directly worked on your imagination. He literally helped you imagine him as president. And he does it with lots of things. He wears the presidential suits and he always has a flag and an eagle nearby and making America great again, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, you know, he, he had that going for him. So uh, you see the technique, but here's the thing that makes him on another level. The thing that makes him on another level is his audacity, all right, and also the size of his personality and the risk he's willing to take and the norms he's willing to violate. Your ordinary persuader is going to stay within the, within the boundaries of good social behavior because people are just, uh, you know, we just have a big incentive to do that, right? We have to, whatever we're persuading today, we have to still live in the world tomorrow. So we don't want to pollute our world too much. So we, we persuade, persuade within bounds. Trump doesn't recognize those boundaries for his persuasion. He will say something that he absolutely knows will get fact-checked and shown as, as false because it works in many cases. Uh, because the, the fact being checked might end up being false, but it makes you spend a bunch of time thinking about what he wants you to think about. And it's the time and the energy and the concentration that rises and makes something rise in importance in your mind somewhat irrationally. So we think the most important thing is whatever we're spending most time talking about. So, for example, before the election cycle, if you'd ask me, name five biggest problems in the world, uh, border control and immigration wouldn't have been on my top five. Well, it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't think about it. But by the end of the election, people were pretty darn sure that was the most important thing, even though he had bad facts and changed his policy details and first he was going to bar everybody from these countries and then it was extreme vetting. The details didn't matter. Uh, so all that wrongness worked in his favor because you kept debating the wrongness until immigration became the, the most important thing in your mind. So, it so, never was. So, so again, it's sort of like directionally he takes you there and the details aren't as important as the, the direction. Yeah, so, so where he does pacing and leading with the public is that he will agree with people emotionally while getting all the details wrong. So, for example, when he says, uh, you know, living in the, uh, the inner cities is so dangerous, you know, you get shot in the streets and there's more crime than ever and murders are terrible. Well, the fact checker said, eh, not so much. Actually, crime's been going down in most places anyway. Um, but it didn't matter. Because what you heard was that Trump cared so much about this issue. That's the part you left with. And that's the part he cared about. The details didn't matter. It was one of a thousand things that weren't exactly true that all the candidates were saying. What mattered was you felt he was on your side. So and this gets back to the, the issue of charisma. Because charisma, scientists say, is a combination of uh, power and empathy. And this is, this is like a really important concept because if you, have, if you see somebody who has power but they don't have empathy for you, they're just dangerous because they could do something for themselves with all their power that just doesn't take you into consideration or hurt you. That person's bad. If somebody has empathy but they have no power, they're probably just a drain on your resources because you're probably going to be taking care of them. Mm -hmm. right? They have no power. They can't do anything for themselves. So the ultimate 
charismatic individual, someone who has both power, which Trump had on day one. Everybody saw that. But he didn't seem to have empathy. So if, so if he says something that makes you remember the empathy, but forget you know, that maybe some of his details were wrong, that's a huge persuasion win. It puts you, it puts you on his side. So he did the same thing with immigration, for example. So there were a number of people in his base, especially, who were very concerned about immigration. So he became even more concerned than they were. He took a more extreme um, position because that's where he could get the most empathy. He wasn't, he wasn't just a visitor on this topic of immigration. He was going to put his whole, uh, literally, he bet his whole career, his reputation, he bet his business on that topic. And so why, why, do you think, that, why do you think he chose that topic? Like, did he do polling in advance to see that this was a potential base and this was the topic important to them? Uh, my understanding, and this is anecdotal and working from memory, is that he did read uh, Ann Coulter's book on this topic before he was public about any of this stuff. So I know that he was doing um, some amount of research, finding uh, probably information on that topic in particular, but obviously he was prioritizing as he went to figure out what was important. So um, I think this combination of he thought it was important, but I, it also is a, uh, it's an issue that has one thing really working for it, that it was sort of a fresh field. It wasn't a topic that you were used to in other, other campaigns, but it was also somewhat simple to describe to the public so you, you could just say, I'm going to build a wall. Leave out all the details about some terrain needs a fence and other trains. It's better if you just use drone surveillance. Forget all those details. Let everybody argue forever about how it can't all be a wall because that would be too expensive. But when they're done arguing, they're all going to agree we need better border security. And that's what he got. Well, let me, let me ask you this because this reminds me of, let's say, Rick Perry you know, in the prior election, in the in the uh, in the primaries, saying he was going to eliminate all these cabinet departments, but then he couldn't name. I think it was three cabinet departments that he was going to eliminate, and so he got crucified over that. As opposed to people focusing on the main topic, which is that he was going to eliminate, you know, big chunks of government. How come he couldn't use persuasion the same way uh, Trump did? Where did he fail? A few different ways. One is that. Uh, Trump is so wrong so often and so outrageous so often that any new thing he does gets lost in the rounding. It, it's just sort of more of it. And you put it in context, and you go, oh, that's Trump again. Uh, Rick Perry wasn't that guy. So when he said something in public in the worst possible way during the, during a televised debate, and he forgot the third name, you know, the uh, energy department, I guess, um, he, he did the next mistake. He said, oops. He actually said, oops. So he admitted that he was making a mistake in public. Trump in that same situation could have forgotten the three and admit you never would have noticed because he would have said, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to eliminate this one and this one. And you know, I'd have to take a look at it, but I'll bet there's, I'll bet there's 10 you could eliminate. I'm just making this up. Right. But if I were Trump and I'd forgotten that third one, I would have said something like, I'll bet there are 10 you could eliminate. And then he would make everybody argue about how that's ridiculous and there couldn't possibly be 10 you could eliminate. And they would just forget that he only listed two. <laughs> so it seems like he almost in- instinctively would hone in on the, the most important point and then go beyond the sale in almost every case. 
Yeah, he's always taking the extreme so he can negotiate back to not the middle, but the middle plus. That's Be the whole idea. Nobody, nobody wants the middle. Everybody wants the middle plus a little better direction. Because you, you, you've even pointed out, um, for instance, where Trump might have made a mistake and the public called him out on it, and he was able to to back off. Like, like the, in the case of um, penalties for for women having abortions, the, the public had outcry over this, and he he backed off. But directionally, he was he was going where his base was going, but he was able to back off without being crucified over it. Yeah, he gets a little bit of a free pass, especially earlier in the campaign, for being a what I'll call a citizen politician. So nobody really expected him to have the same grasp of the you know, the details as Clinton. So when you saw it happen a few times, and that was the best example, I think, uh, you sort of said to yourself, oh, you better learn this stuff pretty fast, but I get why he would miss something like that. I mean, nobody, nobody was too surprised. Because by the way, if you had asked that same question to the public, almost everybody would have gotten it wrong. Uh, if you said, is there a crime with, that's, you know, that's a big crime, but the person doing the crime knowingly um, should not be punished, there's nobody who would have said that's a good idea. But when you put it in this specific context of abortion, it turns out there is a pretty good argument for not punishing the, the woman and only punishing the doctor because of what it does to people's incentives. Uh, so, so it was perfectly reasonable he got that one wrong. But he got a pass for being a newbie, I think. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And... I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? 
answer to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Do you think any candidate could have started this way in the sense that, so so like you say, Trump was this citizen candidate, so he's kind of given a pass because of that. Is there any other can like let's say you're a Marco Rubio, where where you're a professional politician? How could you have seized that 
area of the election if you wanted to. It, would it have been possible for a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio to kind of uh, compete at, on this level? Yeah, they were all kind of stuck in their uh, their grooves. I mean, once you're a mainstream uh, politician, you're kind of committed to staying that way because it's going to look like you became crazy if you get out of your if you get out of your groove. Um, Trump came in it with just fewer preconceptions and you know, uh, obviously no boundaries. So he was willing to go wherever he needed to go to to get it done. So let's say let's say I'm listening to this and I'm sitting in my cubicle and I'm about to go to my boss to ask him for a raise. How can I almost translate this Trump technique to go in there and persuade for a raise? Well, a lot of uh, a lot of it is going to be fairly obvious when I say it. So one of the things you can do is uh, ask for a tremendous amount more than you think you could get. So if you only want a raise. Ask for a promotion. Hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, if you if you think you need ten percent, say uh, everybody you know is getting twenty percent, and you couldn't possibly stay here. Now, those are those are all obvious negotiating things. But if you wanted to get one lo- level more subtle, let's say there's someone who's paid more than you, and they have certain characteristics, you might try to conflate yourself with that person over time. You might try to get on their project teams. You might want to show up with them. You might want to mention their name every time you're talking about yourself. Say, oh, yeah, we both are doing this together. So that in in your boss's mind, you start to get more similar to this other person for irrational reasons. You just become paired in the mind of your boss. And at that point, when you go in and say, you know, Bob's making 20% more than I am, it's going to seem weird to your boss. Because he's going to see you as the same person. You know, you're sort of conflated. So that that would be one way. Uh, there are probably uh, dozens of small ways you could influence. Uh, and, I, and certainly, you'd want to you'd want to pace and lead your boss. You'd want to you'd want to be doing emotionally. You'd want to agree with him as much as possible and match his body language, his breathing, his posture, his his way of talking. And then, when you suggest that you should have a raise, it's going to feel a little bit more like it's coming out of his own head. Now you you refer to one technique Trump uses as the uh, the linguistic kill shot. So where he basically, you know, like he says, Jeb Bush is is low energy, uh, and and you kind of say it's it's sort of an insult that you could visualize, and it's words that have never been used before in a campaign. Do you think this was instinctive from Trump or or planned? Like he 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 knew to use this technique. Yes, um, he's the master brander. He says so himself. So there, there are a few people in the world who understand how to manage a brand better than Trump. He's been doing it forever and, and very successfully. But if you look at the the engineering in his linguistic kill shots, um, they also have this other component, which is they they invite future confirmation bias, mm-hmm. meaning that once you've heard it, you keep getting reminded of it by uh, clues in the environment later. And that's really what made them special. Uh, so if, once you said low energy Jeb, every time you saw him, you'd say to yourself, yeah, that was a little low energy, even if you never had that thought before. Um, once you said Lion Ted, well, Ted Cruz was a politician, so you knew he would be at least accused of lying sometime in the future, and that would reinforce it. Likewise, Crooked Hillary, um, you knew that she would be accused of more crooked stuff in the future just because it's a political campaign. So that would reinforce it. 
Um, so that was the cleverness. It was, it was that future reinforcing. And, compare and, that to, well, compare that to the Clinton side. Uh, they played with um, a nickname for Trump, Dangerous Donald. I don't know if you remember that because it didn't get a lot of purchase. No. But there, uh, I think it was in the wiki email leaks that they were talking about that as well. But if you, but look how weak that is and how poorly designed that is. Because first of all, it makes you think of, um, oh, oh, no, they were working on Donald Duck. That's what it was. Because he was ducking his tax returns and he was ducking answers and stuff like that. So here they were trying to conflate this candidate that they were trying to paint as this dangerous character with a, a lovable cartoon character. The biggest persuasion mistake you could possibly make because the cartoon character is pretty well set in people's minds and people have a favorable impression of it. It's cute, it's fuzzy, it's lovable. Wouldn't you like the pet doll duck? So it was just a terrible idea for a, for a nickname. Compare that to Trump's, which were pretty much A-plus every time. But now, the one thing I did kind of get from the... Uh, Hillary campaign is that this this guy tweeting spelling mistakes at, at three in the morning would be close to the nuclear codes. And so that kind of creates a scary image, this sort of monstrous image. And did you think that type of persuasion technique was, was working? Yeah, Clinton's persuasion game over the summer was far stronger than Trump's. And the reason it was is that she took the the, the highest available weapons grade form of persuasion that you could possibly have. And, and that is fear. So she said, um, you know, regardless of anything else, this guy's scary. And he's scary in a way that will kill all of us. And it won't just kill strangers. And we're not talking about somebody, somebody dies in a terrorist attack, but it's in a state you don't know or a state you don't visit. Um, we're talking about nuclear holocaust and the whole world going up in a fireball. So it was the ultimate kind of fear. And she could say it's just a risk, which, of course, anything's a risk, I suppose. So, so nobody would, would fact check against it. It just, it just activated you on this pure fear level. So that was, that was really powerful, and that was his biggest problem over the summer. And in fact, I would argue, so, so much so I would argue that I don't, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly before. But I think when the Access Hollywood tapes dropped and the conversation turned suddenly from um, nuclear holocaust to sexual escapades, um, I actually I think it actually helped Trump. Well, not right away, because people were just appalled when they first heard it. But over time, it took the conversation away from the super scary thing to a question of, oh, is this, this guy you know, a little icky and you know, we don't like what he said? Uh, it was a whole tamer argument that is far less persuasive, as it turns out. So, if, so if so you had been, might turn out, yeah. Oh, if you had been advising Hillary, would you have just like pounded Trump in the debates on kind of, uh, you know, this is the, you know, we have a potential nuclear monster on our hands, which is which is visual words that haven't been used before. It would be a good linguistic kill shot. Yeah, I think I would have stayed on that. The I don't think you could um, avoid climbing on once the access Hollywood tapes came out. It was, that was just uh, too rich a target. So there, I don't know there was any way she could have avoided going heavy on that. But if it hadn't happened and she had just hammered the nuclear point, I think she could have won. So, so you've also mentioned um, Donald has a very good, what you call a talent stack. And I think this is very useful for, for anybody in any 
field of endeavor. How would you describe a, a talent stack? So a talent stack is any uh, set of talents that you group together that work well uh, as a group. So it's, it's more about how they work well together than it is about how many of them are. If you look at Trump, uh, all of his talents work really well for what he just did. So, for example, he's, he's a real good public speaker, not the best in the world, but, you know, top 10% probably. Um, he's funny. He's not a stand-up comedian, but he's definitely funny, funnier than most people. He's smarter than most people. He knows more about politics than most people. He knows far more about business strategy than most people, way more about persuasion and negotiating than most people. Um, and, and probably there are, you know, 15 sub skills underneath them. I mean, even, even his Twitter skill is unusually good. You know, it didn't seem that way when you first started seeing it, but I think, you know, hindsight says it was. So that was a whole bunch of skills that are all, uh, they seem to be all involved with persuasion in some way and communicating. So in terms of, you know, swaying a large group of people and, you know, being comfortable in the public and, and all of those things, he had every one of those skills and, and really an insanely good stack. Compare that to Clinton, who had a different stack that included, um, more detailed policy knowledge, for example, but she didn't have the sense of humor, the the speaking, um, you know, charisma that Trump has. So her stack was different, and as it turns out, a little less powerful. And I think I think about this in terms of, again, the 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 general person trying to improve their status in life. Some of these things are not terribly difficult to get better at. Like for instance public speaking, speaking or writing or social media or understanding of politics, you know, it's possible to build a talent stack is what I'm saying. Yeah. So my book kind of failed almost everything and still when big talks mostly about building systems instead of goals. And one of the best systems is to intelligently improve your stack. I was just talking to a, a young guy the other day, 20 something trying to decide what college courses to take. And based on his, his uh, interests, I was saying that if he could uh, become a graphic designer, his key interest, but he were to add on top of that some HTML skills so he could you know, play with websites. He knew a little uh, A-B testing so he could test where the button should be and you know, get the better result. The, if he, he had a little bit of skill on user interface design, which is you know, different than those other things, that would be an insanely strong stack because almost every startup wants somebody who has that set of skills. Plus, whether it worked for someone or not, he could build his own websites, test them, make sure they're good, they look good, they look professional. He could pitch any idea. You know, he could pitch his website because he'd be able to present it so well with those skills. So uh, that's an insanely good stack. Well, what's uh, what's your stack? I mean, we could kind of figure it out from from Dilbert, but what's what would you say your 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 talent stack that you most use is? So, uh, I never took a professional writing class. I took a business writing class, which turns out to be really good for cartooning because it's about simple sentences. Um, and I would consider myself a good writer, but not great. I would consider myself funny, but not the funniest person even in my own house if I have a party. If I have 20 people in my, my house, probably one of them is funnier than I am. Um, I'm pretty smart. I'm not the smartest person in the world. I, I know a lot about business, but I'm not you know, Warren Buffett. 
And that gives me a topic to write about in my cartoon. Um, and I had a technology background from my corporate days. So I could uh, get Dilbert on, he was the first syndicated comic on the internet, for example, which was a, a big deal at the time. So I think, I I think also that, the, the fact that you are aware that you could interweave these to produce one product is, is part of the, the skill of having a talent stack. Yeah, recognizing it is definitely part of it. And then on top of that, my persuasion skills, which I use in, in everything I do. So it's in the comic, it's in my writing. How, how is it in Dilbert? So you notice that Dilbert uh, doesn't have a last name. And you don't know the first or last name of his boss, even though the boss is the most common character in the script. He doesn't have a name. Uh, there's no name for the company, and you don't know exactly what products they make at Dilbert's company. And all that's intentional. It's a persuasion technique that allows the reader to read into the situation and fill in all the blanks. So it allows them to say the most common thing that anybody has ever said to me over the entire Dilbert run is you must have a camera in my office. Hmm. This is just like my work. And part of that is I don't give them reasons for it not to be. So for example, uh, let me just uh, give the uh, obvious example. If I said Dilbert's company makes cell phones, then everybody who had a company that does technology, but it wasn't about making cell phones would say, yeah, not exactly my company. You know, if he had a last name, you'd say, uh, that ethnicity, that says he's a certain ethnicity, probably a certain religion. I'm not that ethnicity, and I'm not that religion. That gives me a little less to connect to. So letting people fill in the blanks is a, a huge part of persuasion. You, you give them just enough, and you let them fill in all the rest. So, so I want to read you some sentences that I read in various blog post you've written since the election and just ask uh, some questions about what you were thinking. Like one, one example is you wrote a post about the the Ford and carrier deals that Trump did where he kept, you know, a small amount of jobs in the, in the country, um, but he touted these as big plays. And, and um, you wrote uh, uh, Trump and Pence are pulling off one of the most skillfully, skillfully exec- executed new CEO plays you will ever see. And I'm curious... Why did you include Pence in that sentence, since Pence wasn't really involved in these uh, uh, plays? Well, I included Pence just because he was traveling with him, at least uh, at least on some of that. Um, and I just included him as a team. There wasn't any deeper thinking than the fact that they were operating as a team. Okay, I was... Uh, but the I, idea there... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, well, you, the, the idea there is that the, the persuasion play is that they had this rare opportunity to make a first impression a second time. Nobody ever gets that chance, right? But we allow that for a candidate because we know they're in candidate mode. And when they, they move out of candidate mode and they become president-elect, they have a fresh start. And we, we start imagining that what they do from that day is far more important than whatever they did in the campaign, which we easily forget. So Trump, being the great persuader, knew that what he did between now and Inauguration Day is how he's going to be remembered. That first impression becomes hard to dislodge. So what he did was, it's so clever. It's just amazingly clever. But it's also a standard procedure in corporate America. So he he was just taking this technique to politics. You find some small, easy-to-fix, visual, easy-to-understand thing, and then you do it right away because that's your brand. 
So the brand that he established right away was, I don't care if it's a thousand jobs or one job, I'm going to fly across the country and save these jobs for the American worker. I'm going to go there in person. You know, I'm going to make this my highest priority. And just by doing that, forget about the details, whether those jobs were ever going to leave, how many there were, it's not important. None of that matters. What you saw was Trump and Pence scratching and clawing to keep every American job. And four years from now, you're still going to have that, that idea in your head, no matter what they do between now and then. You're, they, that first impression is really enduring. So you, you, you wrote another excellent blog post about China because there was the whole issue that he took a call from Taiwan. And you, you say, uh, don't worry about China going to war over a phone call. They understand Trump and because they, in part because they read my blog too. Now, were you just joking there or do you have a sense that people from China are reading your blog? Uh, at this point, I make the assumption that, uh, <laughs> that anybody who's observing American politics is reading, well, let's say, the top 20 or 30 places that there's something interesting about American politics. I, I've I think that... in the last year, I, okay. yeah, I, I'm probably in the top 30 at this point. So I, I think somebody in China certainly is reading my blog. I mean, I've noticed since the election, like comments on your blog have gone from, like, let's say, 100 to 200 to your recent post on climate change had over 5,000 comments. It did? I didn't know that. Yeah, you, um, you're, you're regularly getting over 1,000 comments now. Like you've, It seems like you've multiplied by 10 or 50 uh, your, the traffic to your blog in the past month. Yeah, I think the biggest change is that my uh, I wasn't really using t- Twitter two years ago. Uh, and probably a year ago, I was around 15,000 followers, and now it's 115,000. So I think a lot of that blog commenting is because I, I tweet my blogs out now and the traffic goes from there. So another thing you say is, um, uh, you know, since Trump won, you said, I, uh, I told you he would change more than politics. I said he would open a crack in reality so you could view it through a new filter. So what do you actually mean by that? Uh, what I meant is uh, what we were talking about in the beginning, the, the perceptual shift that people normally look at the world and say, well, people are mostly rational people. Let's say 90% of the time we're rational. Sure, once in a while we get a little emotional and we get a little crazy, you know, we get that. But mostly we're a rational world and things are working rationally. Uh, the perceptual shift is that that's just completely false and that we're emotional creatures making emotional decisions on just about everything that matters. And we rationalize it after the fact. And what I knew is that facts and policies and details and all those things, experience, all the things that you think should matter on the rational, logical, reasonable side of your brain just wouldn't. In the end, we would, we would not say it was because of a, a policy or, or anything like that. It would be how you felt about the candidates. And uh, I thought that because Trump was going to do this thing I predicted, which is win against all odds and, and do it without regard to fact-checking, uh, and I knew that I would be blogging this process along the way, I thought I could uh, help make that point uh, and, and move people to the, the realization that even their own mind is only pretending to be rational. And once you realize that, it, it actually makes life a lot easier 
because everything starts to make sense. So given that, how can I personally improve my life? Given that I just assume everything's, everybody makes decisions irrationally. And there, there are some books about this, like, you know, Dan Ariely has Predictably Irrational and Freakonomics is sort of about this. And the whole area of behavioral economics is sort of about this. But viewing it from a, a persuasion point of view or a hypnotist point of view, how can I make my life better today knowing this? Well, I've been recommending what I call the persuasion reading list. Um, so I curated a bunch of books that are on this topic, uh, books like Influence and Persuasion and Thinking Fast and Slow and Habit, um, a number of others. So if you just Google the, the phrase persuasion reading list, you'll see my book as well as other books on that list. So the first thing I'd say is um, anybody who reads that list is going to have something like a superpower over people who haven't. They're, they're simply going to understand the reality at a far greater level. And how that translates into benefiting your life is every single way, from your, your romance to your whatever. Uh, let, let me give you an, like a concrete example of something I learned a long time ago that's irrational, but it's so useful. Um, I think it was the uh, whoever wrote uh, Matter from Mars, Water from Venus. Yeah, John Gray. He, he said that, uh, all right. So, he, and he said that uh, when you get home, let's say both spouses are working, you get home and you're seeing each other after a long day, that the woman, this is him talking, the woman needs to unwind and, and sort of express how her day went before you should say anything, the guy. Now, rationally, I said to myself, hey, you know, I have a right to talk. I had a bad day too. Why don't I say whatever I want to say? And she can say it later. And what difference does it make? But I started testing that. Just, you know, letting my, uh, my significant other at the time unload for 15 minutes, like Gray said. And sure enough, it just made the whole night go better. <laughs> and it, there was some kind of pent up need there. Well, now, I, I'm not going to go full sexist and say this, this applies to all men and all women, but I did try this somewhat irrational technique that the rational mind didn't, didn't really agree with making complete sense. And it worked for me. You know, you always kind of, um, it's interesting. You always kind of back off a little and like you just said, I'm not going to say this applies to everyone. And just like uh, when you were talking, writing so much about Trump, you always underlined, uh, you know, but you know, I, I might quite, quite possibly be for, Clinton, actually you said you were for Clinton, but but it was always a sense of there was a gray area there. And on climate change, you, you put in bold, uh, just to be clear, um, with the scientific consensus on climate change, which is a very ambiguous way of putting it. But you have also have this way of like backing off, I guess, to kind of have a big umbrella over people. Um, what I'm doing there is sort of the opposite of what I was talking about before. So before I was talking about making intentional factual mistakes because it makes people focus where you want them to focus. When there are cases where I don't want people to focus someplace, I'll put in that caveat so they won't. So in other words, if I said, men do this, um, I know that that would invite people saying, I'm a man and I don't do that. I know a man who doesn't do that. You're totally wrong. Everything else you say must be wrong because uh, all men don't do that. Now, what I mean is most men, if I make any kind of a statement like that. But since I know it would invite that kind of criticism, and that would be distraction from whatever my main point is, I don't want people focusing on that. I'll add in the caveat, of course, that doesn't mean all men. So I allow people to say, oh, okay, I agree with that. 
it's it's also a uh, a pacing and leading trick because um, I want to give you the the most powerful um, persuasion tip that I've never seen anywhere. So th- this is one that possibly I've invented it, but probably not. I suppose it's in other people's books somewhere. I just haven't read them. Um, if you can say what somebody's thinking before they tell you they're thinking it, and it's not an obvious thought it totally blows them away and, and changes their opinion of your opinion. So how do you do that? Um, and I do, so for example, when I, if I were to write, and uh, men always leave the toilet seat open, I would know that a whole bunch of men are saying, I don't do that, that's not true. So my very next sentence would be, for example, I know you're going to say most men don't do this, or I know you're going to say you don't do this or somebody you know doesn't do this. So in other words, I... I say what I think they're thinking at that moment. And if I get it right, and in that case, it probably would be easy to get it right, the person reading it just bonds with you uh, because they go, oh my God, you're in my brain. All right, we're thinking the same thoughts. So um, if if you have a different thought later, uh, I'm going to take that seriously because you, know, you and I think the same. Uh, I'll give you, uh, I've also made this a similar comment about Bill Gates and... Uh, you know, Nassim Taleb, the two of the smartest people in the world. I've said that if I disagree with them about some point, like if I hear them come out and say something that I disagree with, I will immediately change my opinion to their opinion because they have so much credibility and yet they don't seem to have like an agenda beyond being right. Uh, that uh, because I, I imagine that I think the way those two people think on most topics, meaning I would probably agree with them on 98% of things if we were went down the list. If I heard something they disagreed with, they've paced me accidentally, but they've paced me, so I just think I'm just like them. And if they say, I disagree with this, I would immediately say, oh, I'm going to give that a lot of credibility because these people think the way I think. So, so like on climate change, you know that when you write about it, it's such a polarizing issue. Maybe what's what's on every reader's mind is, well, okay, he's going to tell me some facts, but what I really want to know is where he stands. Yes. So you notice that I um, I used the same trick I used in the election when I said I was endorsing Hillary Clinton, but only for my safety. Right. There's a weird effect of that. You would think that the Clinton supporters would say, that's not a real endorsement. I hate you anyway. And some did. But uh, more people than you would think back off and say, all right, you're on the same team. I don't need to know why. <laughs> I don't need your details. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of power to say you're on somebody's team, even if you're completely disagreeing with everything that the team says. Uh, so on climate change, I say, I said in my blog, and I'll say now, that I agree with the scientific consensus because that's generally a smart play. Just in general, that's a smart play. But in this particular topic, it also is the only safe thing I can say. So while I do have my skepticism about the the ability of any complicated model to predict anything, whether it's climate change or something else, uh, in fact, I'll go further than skepticism. It never works. (laughs) Complicated models predicting the future years in advance just don't work. Well, you have a a great um, set of heuristics in that particular post about when a large theory like that is suspect is if they kind of change the terminology midway through, you know, going from global warming to climate change. And you give a bunch of heuristics that are very good. I, I highly recommend people read uh, uh, that post. 
Um, thank you. That's at Dilbert.com under the blog link. So, um, so, so yeah, I think I think I might have been wrong about the one heuristic uh, when I said that it, that it changed from climate um, from global warming to climate change. Some people fact checked that and said, uh, "No, that's not true." Both terms have been in use for a long time, but I would argue that that just changing which is the popular one right. is a flag. It may not be the flag I meant it to be, but you know, if you have enough flags, that by itself wouldn't mean anything. But you know, if you have enough evidence, you got to take that seriously. So you brought it up in the beginning uh, of this podcast, and I and I have to ask, how do you use persuasion and hypnotism techniques to trigger multiple orgasms? <laughs> uh, well, if I told you, your your listeners might be having them. Uh, first of all, it doesn't work with everybody, as you might imagine. Um, there's there's a rule of thumb in hypnosis that about 20% of the public can experience what they call the phenomena. That's a hypnosis term. So the phenomena means that you can actually see or feel something like it's real, even at the same time knowing it's not, perhaps. So in the same way that you can make somebody's uh, arm rise, you could directly suggest that other parts of their body were experiencing other sensations. Now, 80% of the public would maybe feel it and have a, you know, an effect, but 20% uh, feel it very distinctly. They feel it just like it's real. And uh, they wouldn't be having an illusion of having these massive multiple orgasms. They would actually have them, um, but it would be triggered entirely by their mind. So their mind would cause their body to, to, to have a sensation. Are you asking about the specific technique? Yeah, the specific technique. That's, that's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, well, that would be beyond the scope of this call, but I'll give you a sense of it. All right, every person's different. So you might say, for example, uh, if you knew them well enough, um, you would actually ask them what, the, what ideas or thoughts sexually turn them on. So once you knew which list um, worked for this particular person, you would start mentioning that stuff. You would put them under hypnosis. You'd say, you know, your arm is rising, your, your left hand is tingling or whatever, until you had... You had a sense that you could directly control their physical body. And at that point, you would just make the suggestion that they were feeling something in their, in their, uh, um, their sex bits. And once you saw some feedback, either they squirmed or reacted to it, you'd know that that was happening. And then you just keep working on it. You just say, um, just as I did with your eyelid example earlier, I would say, um, and by the way, the, the first things I said might not be exactly true. They're just something that the subject um, recognizes as it feels true. So I might say, uh, and you're a lot more aroused than you were a second ago. It might not even be true. But if they say to themselves, well, that might be true. I think I am. That's good enough for the beginning of the, uh, the induction. And eventually you're going to say, you know, something that's just totally true. Like you were, you know, you're on the edge of popping right now, and maybe that's true. And it's again, when you say something that somebody's thinking, and they don't think that you could possibly know that, it just goes right through them, and it, and it seals the connection between your brains. Um, you know, at some point, you could just directly suggest that it happens. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to start trying these techniques, all of them. Uh, Maybe uh, if I ever run for president, you could be my vice presidential candidate. Uh, if you accept. Uh, 
you know, it's funny that I, I would rather be the vice president than the president because it seems like I'd have more time off that way. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I even wrote there should only be a vice president in, in one article. And uh, I went on John Stossel, who debated with me on this. And of course, I'm wrong. And that that was just that. But I do agree with you on that. <laughs> um, so So Scott Adams, not only author of all the Dilbert comics that you've ever read, but the author of the excellent book, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, Kind of the Story of My Life. I like that subtitle. Why did you pick Kind of the Story of My Life? Well, because it's not the complete story of my life. It's a, it's a snapshot of a particular part of it. Um, and it wasn't only about my life. It was also about uh, you know, other stuff, you know, techniques for success. Well, it's an it's an excellent book, and I've been seeing uh, a lot more people referring to it lately, particularly since the results of the election. Congrats on on everything, and Scott, once again, thank you for for coming on my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love this, Scott. Thank you. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know, and you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.